So please take your Bibles and turn now to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17. This is the third letter uh, to the seven churches. This is to the church of Pergamos. Uh, and this is the church is considered or called to be the compromised or the compromising church. So we will read uh, verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. So Jesus, our Lord, says to John and write and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So as I said last time, we looked at the second of the seven letters, the, uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna. And we saw in that letter, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, that Smyrna was the persecuted church. And here in that letter, Jesus reveals himself to that church as the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead and who came to life. And he comes to them saying he knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, he knows the blasphemy of their enemies. Now, unlike the other letters in which there is usually a commendation, something that they're doing well, and then there's also a rebuke where he goes against them and says, this is what you're doing bad, to the church in Smyrna, there is no rebuke. Instead, he brings words of encouragement and says, he tells them not to fear any of the things that they are about to suffer. In fact, he tells them that their tribulation will be short. It will be 10 days. And he tells them that as the one who is the first and the last, the one who was dead and who came to life, that he is sovereign over their trials. And then he gives them an encouragement through suffering. And he promises to the one who overcomes that he or she, the one who overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. And we spoke about how the second death Uh, represents uh, eternal damnation. So, you know, you die once physically. The second death is the death you would die eternally, uh, spiritually, in the last days when Jesus returns and he separates the sheep from the goats. And the goats, those on his left hand, go into eternal punishment. They go into the eternal fire of hell. We see that later on in Revelation chapter 20. I think we even read that last week or two weeks ago, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So now as we come to the third letter here, the church in Pergamos, the letter to that church, we return to what is the normal pattern in the letters here. So you're going to see a greeting by Jesus to this church in which he identifies himself to this church using the imagery, again, that we find in Revelation chapter 1. So all of that uh, imagery we see in chapter 1 in which he 
gives the vision uh, to John. John receives this vision of the exalted Christ. There, we went through all of the imagery in there. All of this imagery then becomes sort of a source for Jesus to pull upon as he addresses each one of these seven churches. And each of these, each of these, uh, each image that he pulls here has some kind of reference or some kind of um, importance to the church that he speaks to. So there's that he pull, he identifies himself in each of these letters. He's going to give the church in Pergamus a commendation. He's going to tell them, this is what you're doing well. Keep it up. But then there's going to be, he's going to go back now. We're going to see some rebuke here because the church in Pergamus is in need of some correction. They're the compromising church and they need a word of rebuke from our Lord. So he's going to rebuke them for what they're doing wrong. Then there's going to be a warning to repent. So I'm going to point out what you're doing wrong. This is what you need to change. You need to repent or else. And then there is a promise to the one who overcomes. Now, in the church of Pergamos, like Smyrna, we don't know anything, at least from the biblical record, about the church in Pergamos. This is the only time you, we hear about a church in Pergamos in the Bible is here in Revelation chapter 2. So we don't know anything about this church. So anything we glean from this, we have to pull out from history and from some extra biblical sources. Now, we do know that Pergamus sits about 55 or 60 miles north of Smyrna. So if you want to look on that map, if you can kind of isolate where Smyrna is, then just it's almost due north of Smyrna uh, up there in, in the north, I guess, northwest corner of Asia Minor. And Pergamus was sort of like the Roman capital of Asia Minor. So again, we understand this is part of the Roman Empire now, okay? So uh, Rome has expanded as far east as Asia Minor, all the way up to where I guess would be Persia or modern-day Iran. So this is the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And as such, Pergamus sat in Asia Minor. It was sort of like the Roman capital of Asia Minor. So think of... You know, you've got the capital in Washington, D.C., and then each of the 50 states has its own capital. Lincoln is our capital. Well, Smyrna, or Pergamus, was the capital of Asia Minor for the Roman Empire. And it was a remarkable city in its own right. So if Ephesus could be considered sort of like the New York City of Asia Minor, then Pergamus would sort of be like the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. It boasted a famous library, which was second only to the great library in Alexandria. And the library in Pergamos had, is estimated, somewhere around 200,000 volumes in their library. Pergamos was also a center of idolatry and false religion, as most of these cities were. In fact, it boasted temples to four separate Greco-Roman gods. It had a temple to Zeus. It had a temple to Athena. It had a temple to Dionysius, and it had a temple to Asclepius. Okay, there's going to be a quiz at the end of the lesson here, if you can remember the names of the four uh, Greek gods here. Now, the last one there, Asclepius, is especially relevant for our study. Does anybody know who Asclepius is? Any Greek mythology buffs here? Don't worry, I didn't know this either. I, I, I looked this up. But Asclepius is the god of healing. Okay? Now, 
If anybody has been to a hospital or works in a, in a medical setting, uh, Leslie, you might know this. Um, what is the symbol of the medical profession? Right, you've got the snake twirling around the staff. That is the staff of Asclepius. That is his symbol. Okay, so our modern medical profession essentially worships the god Asclepius. But it is the symbol of the god Asclepius, who is the god of healing. So people from around the world would come to this temple in Pergamus to find healing and restoration. In fact, Asclepius was known as Asclepius the Savior. Okay? And as we said, his symbol is the serpent wrapped around a winged staff. Now, biblically speaking, what does the serpent represent? Satan, the devil, right, okay? So it's interesting that Jesus refers to Pergamus in this letter as what? Where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's throne is. Now, most importantly, Pergamus was also the center of Asia's cult of emperor worship. We may have mentioned this before, that during the Roman Empire, there was this sort of cult that arose that was sort of an emperor worship type cult. So the emperor sort of proclaimed himself as a deity and that you had to um, pay homage to the emperor as a god. You didn't have to worship the emperor exclusively. You just had to sort of bow your knee to the emperor as well as to all, the, all your other gods. So it was the center, though, of Asia's cult of emperor worship. And anyone not worshiping Caesar as a god would face the most severe persecutions and punishments. Now, something we need to understand about Greco-Roman worship, okay? Greco-Roman worship was not an exclusive kind of thing. It wasn't sort of like you worship our gods and you have to ignore and give up your own religion, okay? Greco-Roman worship was what is called syncretistic, which means that they were sort of a, a hodgepodge or they went to the, you know, it was sort of like the a la carte type of religion. They would take a little bit of here, a little bit from here. And as long as, you know, you sort of worship the emperor, you can bring whatever religion you want. OK, they were pretty, in a sense, tolerant of other religions because they didn't really care. As long as you didn't rock the boat of the Roman power structure, which is kind of why the Jews were sort of persecuted a lot, because they hated the Roman power structure. They had a whole system of, you know, the zealots were sort of the, you know, the revolutionaries that would go around and try to assassinate Roman soldiers. So the Romans from time, you know, from time after time would come in and have to sort of discipline the Jewish people. Finally, A.D. 70, they just completely wiped out Jerusalem and scattered the Jews all over the world. But it didn't really matter who or how you worshipped as long as your religion could be absorbed into the Greco-Roman worship of the day. Now you can imagine how this would sit with Christians coming out of the apostolic period at the end of the first century. For the, for the Christian, who's Lord? It's Jesus' is Lord, right? And Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He does not accept any other uh, substitutes, no other, you know, no, there's no uh, competition for him. So for the Christian in this setting, it would be a very precarious setting to say the least. 
for a Christian to be in a city like Pergamos. I mean, there aren't, it's not like the Christian religion is one of these where there are other gods and then you've got Jehovah who's sort of over them all. It's just Jehovah. All other gods are false gods. There's only one true God. So Pergamos would be a very compromising place, to say the least, for a church to, for a church to exist in. So now as we come now to this passage before us in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, as he does in all the letters, Jesus commands John to write. Write this down. Write this to this church. And he says, to the angel of the church in Pergamos, this is verse 12, write. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So of all the imagery in chapter 1, Jesus pulls the image of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword protruding or proceeding out of his mouth. That's the image he presents to the church in Pergamos. This is something he wants them to know about. I am the one that has the sword that comes out of my mouth. We saw this back in Revelation 1.16, where we saw here in that verse in Revelation 1.16, we're told that Jesus had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, And his countenance, his face, was like the sun shining in his full strength. So this sharp two-edged sword is that which comes out of Jesus' mouth. Now, if you recall, when we looked at this image about a month or so ago, we said that these images, these visions that we see, particularly like things like this, should not be taken in a sort of a woodenly literal sense. Okay, so it's not like Jesus is walking around every time he opens his mouth, a sword comes shooting out of his mouth like some circus guy, you know, who, you know, the guy who swallows the swords or whatever in the circus. That's not what he's talking about here. The idea of the two-edged sword is a picture of the power of the Word of God. Okay, the Word of God is pictured as a sword. When Paul talks about taking up the whole armor of God to fight the spiritual battles, he talks about the sword as the word of God. He says, now take up the sword, which is the word of God. And of course, the writer to Hebrews refers to the, to the word of God as sharper than any two-edged sword, which is able to pierce to the, to the heart of the matter, to the, between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. So it is a picture of the power of the word of God. We see this in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 2. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah where you have this person, it's, it's, it's the Messiah. These are songs of Jesus that are in the Old Testament. But in Isaiah 49, 2, this servant is said that, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me. He has made uh, and, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. So here he's talking about the servant says that he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And of course, at the end of the book of Revelation, when we see that one of those final images of Jesus, one of those final visions of Jesus as the great rider on the white horse, as he is coming now to to slay the arrayed enemies of the people of God, it's said in Revelation 19.15, says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, He himself treads the winepress 
of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So you get this vision of at the end when Jesus comes to in, in, to return in, in, in his glorious second coming, he returns to conquer the enemies of God. And it's going to be one of the most one-sided, lopsided battles in all of history. Because all is, you know, Jesus is going to come, all the armies are arrayed against him, and Jesus is coming, all he does is he opens his mouth and, you know, I mean, boom, they're all, you know, decimated. I mean, it'd be like taking Kansas City Chiefs against the Sutton Mustangs in a football game. It would not be a pretty sight, okay? I mean, I love the Mustangs, but the Kansas City Chiefs would just roll right over them. It would be no contest. And Jesus, all he has to do is just open his mouth and he strikes the nations. Kind of reminds me of that, what you see in Psalm 2. If you're familiar with Psalm 2, where the psalmist says in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. And then in verse 4, he says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. I just love that verse. It's like you've got all the arrayed armies of the world who want to, who want to rebel against God. It's like they're shaking their fists at God, and God is sitting on his throne, and he laughs. And he holds them in derision. In other words, there, there is nothing. The arrayed forces of all the world against the the mighty Son of God, are as nothing. He will slay them with a word from his mouth. Now that's the image that he wants to have in the minds of the people in Pergamos as they read this letter, as they hear what the Lord of the churches will say to them. So John says, now Jesus says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Now, we already looked at Pergamos a little bit earlier, a little bit about its background. Uh, But as we've been saying, Pergamos is the compromising church, the compromising church. And we'll dig a little deeper into this as we go along. But I want to say a few words just about the concept of compromising, because it's a word that has both positive connotations and negative connotations. Now, positively, to compromise is just to make a concession in order to arrive at an agreement. So you've got two parties, they're trying to arrive at an agreement. They don't, you know, maybe they don't meet perfectly, so each side has to give up a little bit in order to make the agreement work. Now, in a case, what you're trying to accomplish in a compromise is a win-win for both sides. So in that sense, compromise is, is in a positive sense. If you can get a win-win for both sides, giving up a little bit, but each side does so, so that you can get kind of what you want, that's a good thing. We see this in business all the time. We see this in politics all the time. The idea of compromising to reach an agreement. But it also has a negative connotation as well. To compromise is to endanger or to expose a vulnerability. For example, if we had repeated rain and hail in this area, it could compromise the integrity of the roof of our church or the roofs of our houses. Or one could compromise one's integrity by exposing oneself to a morally corrupt situation. I mean, you think about like our current vice president, Mike Pence. 
He's got a pence rule. Okay, you've heard of the pence rule. Okay, he does not. He he has agreed, made an agreement with himself. He is committed to himself that he would not be in a in a situation where he's alone with a woman who is not his wife. And the whole point is that he doesn't want to be in a situation that could compromise his integrity. That somebody could look and see and maybe make any kind of false assumption or accusation that he is doing something that would be unfaithful to his wife. Now. Whether you think that's a good plan or a bad plan, the point is it's worked for him. Okay, He doesn't want to be put into a compromising situation. That's the bad side of compromise. Now in a church setting, compromise is when a church relaxes its defenses against doctrinal error or against ethical behavior and allows one or both to sort of creep into the church. So as the church begins to compromise, it begins to compromise when it stops standing for the truth. It's in an effort then to get along or to make friends with the world, the church softens its stance for the Bible and for the truth of God. Now, if you remember when we looked at the church of Ephesus, Ephesus was the no-compromise church, right? They were the church that would not brook any compromise to the truth of of doctrine, to the truth of Scripture. That was their strong suit. They were the the church that was, um, it says here in verse uh, 2 of chapter 2, they cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake. And have not become weary. So this was a tireless church fighting for orthodoxy. They did not compromise. They drew their line in the sand and that was it. They would go no further. Pergamus is on the other side of that line. They're like, we put a line in the sand. Okay, okay, we'll back up a step, put another line in the sand. Back up another step, we'll put another line in the sand. That was, that was kind of what the church of Pergamus was like. So in a church compromises when it tries to get along or make friends with the world. So you see, you know, like, I guess the big thing nowadays would be whether it's, you know, homosexuality or now transgenderism, all these things that try, you know, churches try to start accepting these things. It's like, well, it's not so bad as long as this, that, or the other thing. You start to compromise on your values. You start to compromise on the word of God. And you start to let these things into the church. And just like, Leaven in a lump of bread, it starts to spread throughout the whole church. Now, Jesus talks a lot about leaven. He uses leaven as an example, as an illustration, and almost always leaven is, is something that is bad. Okay? When you let the leaven of the world get into the church just a little bit, it spreads throughout the whole loaf, just like yeast does in a lump of dough. So, when you try to make friends with the world, when you try to get along with the world so that the world doesn't you know, criticize you for being backwards or being uh, too legalistic or whatever, that's when you start to allow compromise into the church. And the history of the church is filled, again, with churches and denominations who have compromised. But the Bible is very, very clear. God and the world don't mix. James 4, chapter 4, James writes, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know... That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So there's no 
compromise there. It's one or the other. It's black or it's white. There's no gray. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. Now the world taken in the sense of the evil world, not the world in general, like the globe, okay? It doesn't mean like, you know, <laughs> you know, we should still care for the world. We should still, you know, pick up our trash and things like that. But we're talking about the world system, the world uh, that is under control of Satan. So after greeting them and giving them the, the charge to write in verse 13, uh, Jesus now commends the church. He tells them something that they're doing well. In verse 13, he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Of course, as he does in all the letters, he says, I know your works. We've looked at this before. This is Jesus, who is the king of the church. He is the one who walks amongst the seven lampstands, so he knows the church. He cares for the church. He is the head of the church. He is her prophet, priest, and king. So Jesus knows the works of the church. And he knows the works of the church in Pergamos. He knows where they dwell. He knows that they dwell in Satan's throne or near Satan's throne. Now, what's going on here? Well, as we said earlier, the city of Pergamos was not only uh, the home of many temples to false gods, but it was also, as we said, the center of emperor worship in Asia. Now, you've got worship of false gods. You've got worship of the emperor. You've got all sorts of other things going on in Pergamos. But what we need to understand is that these are not all like competing religions. Like it wasn't like those four gods, Zeus, uh, Athena, Dionysus, and Asclepius. It wasn't like those four gods were sort of like they were competing with one another. And then you had the cult of emperor worship. It was sort of like what you really have, you need to understand is that all of these religions are all facets of one false demonic religion arrayed against the one true religion. Okay, again, remember, Rome was a, a syncretistic uh, kind of a society. It didn't matter what you worshipped as long as you just got along with one another, as long as you didn't do anything to disrupt somebody else, and as long as you bent the knee to the emperor. But all of these are false religions that are arrayed and, and set up against Christianity, the one true religion. And that's why Jesus tells the church they dwell where Satan's throne is. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 4, so 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Satan is described as the God, small g God, the, the God of this world. In other words, he is in control, in a sense, of this world. And he is also described in Ephesians 2, verse 2, as the prince of the power of the air. So Satan is the great usurper. Satan is the great invader. He is the one who infiltrated God's good creation at the very beginning. And again, if you think about what happened in the garden, the garden was God's sort of temple, in a sense. It was his temple garden. He set it up as a temple garden, and Adam was his caretaker. He was his regent. Adam was placed in the garden to care for the garden. And now, of course, the serpent comes in in chapter 3 of Genesis and says that the serpent is craftier than all the other beasts of the field. 
And the serpent is an invader in God's good creation. Now, what should have Adam have done? Adam should have been the one who took the snake, stomped its head with its heel, and kicked him out of the garden, but he didn't. Adam compromised. Adam compromised with the serpent. Adam and Eve fell. They, they allowed the serpent, they listened to the serpent's words, where the serpent said, hath God said, or you will not surely die, things like that. And they allowed Satan then to sort of come into God's good creation and then take it over. Because Adam failed in his ability, in his job as a caretaker, as a regent for God's good creation. So Satan is a usurper. Now, despite the fact that this church, the church at Pergamos, was in the middle of Satan's central, they held fast to the name of Christ. They they did not deny the faith of Christ. So in a sense, this was a faithful church. They held, its, they held its ground in the face of fierce persecution. Again, remember, Christianity doesn't want to sort of absorb itself into other false religions. So they would have held firm, no, Jesus is Lord, and they would have been facing very fierce persecution for that. They did not deny the name of Jesus. They did not deny the faith of Jesus. And they held fast, even as it says here, in the days in which Antipas was my faithful servant. Now, we don't know, again, anything about this guy, Antipas, even if it was a guy, uh, except that he was a martyr to the faith. He was killed for his faith. He was killed for his testimony. In fact, it's interesting because the name Antipas literally means against all. So here he is in the, in, in the place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, and here's Antipas standing firm against all of the false religions in Pergamos. I will not bow the knee to Zeus. I will not bow the knee to Dionysus. I will not bow the knee to Asclepius or Athena. Jesus is Lord, and he was slain for it. And it was that church, the church in Pergamos, that was what the church was like. They stood tall against all of the onslaught of the enemy. And it's also interesting to note that the phrase there, faithful martyr, can also be translated as faithful witness. So if you've been with us through the Gospel of John, martyr is just the word for witness. And a martyr is one who eventually ends up dying for their witness to Christ. That's why the word martyr just comes right out of the Greek. But Jesus himself is described in Revelation 1.5 as the faithful witness. So here is Antipas, someone who died for his faith, also being described as a faithful witness. But, this is a bad but, but, just like Ephesus, the church in Pergamos had a fatal flaw. They had a fatal flaw in verses 14 and 15. Jesus writes, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, it's interesting, whereas in Ephesus, Jesus had one thing against them. You left your first love. Here he's got a few things against Pergamos. It's like you've got 
more than one problem here. Okay, you've got more than one problem. The church at Pergamos had succumbed to two strands of false teaching. The doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, we'll discuss these in a moment, but first I want to examine Satan's strategy here and what Satan does when he's attacking a church. Okay? When Satan can't get in by breaking down the front door, what Satan then does is he sneaks around to the back door and tries to sneak in through another way. And that's what we're going to see here happen with Pergamos. And it's something we see all throughout the, the, the history of the church. In fact, perhaps you remember way back when we began the study in Revelation, we spoke of the four ways to interpret Revelation. There was the preterist school, the, the futurist school, the idealist school, and the historicist school of interpretation. These are just various ways that they look at the, the visions in Revelation 4 through Revelation 20. Now, just for a refresher, remember, we're, we're, we kind of lean, or at least I kind of lean more toward the idealist school, though I think, as I recall saying, all of these different schools of interpretation have some merit in how to interpret Revelation. Well, the historicist school, which sees Revelation 4 through Revelation chapter 20 as sort of the progression of church history throughout the, the various ages, looks at Revelation 2 and 3 here, these letters, these seven churches, as also sort of like paradigms of the church throughout history. Okay? So the historicist school will look at the church of Pergamos and they'll see this was the church that existed during the period of church history after the persecutions in the second and third century as the church was sort of leading up to its um, tolerance and legalization in the Roman Empire. So in the Roman Empire in, in AD 313, this is when Constantine was the emperor, Constantine the Great, the emperor of the Roman Empire. In AD 313, he issues the Edict of Milan, which at that point, up until that point, Christianity was an, an outlawed religion. It was an illegal religion. You could suffer persecution for being a Christian. After the Edict of Milan, Christianity became a tolerated religion, and eventually Christianity became the actual religion of the Roman Empire. Okay? So you've got this... You know, the church is essentially goes from being a persecuted church, a church under heavy persecution, a church under heavy trials, to now all of a sudden now the church is in the in the halls of power. It is, you know, the, the emperor himself claimed to be a Christian. So you go from outcast to your, you know, your king of the hill all of a, all of a sudden. So the, the historicist school sees the compromising church as the church in that period of, of history. In other words, they, so the Roman Empire couldn't beat the church into submission. So in a sense, what they did is they asked the church to kind of join the party. Hey, why don't you become our, our, our state religion? Okay, we can't beat you. You might as well join you. Okay. Now, it is my contention, as I've studied church history, and I'm not a church historian, but when I took church history classes, <laughs> so my study of church history, I think what happens in this period of actual church history, so this is around... 4th century A.D., uh, this marriage between the church and the state, I think is one of the single biggest compromises in the history of the church. This marriage between church and state. Because what happens here in Rome 
with the Edict of Milan is it led eventually to the behemoth that became the Roman Catholic Church. It led to the intellectual and spiritual dumbing down of the laity or the people because what happened was all the knowledge, all the intellectual power, all of the scholarship, all of the learning was, was concentrated only in the clergy. And all of a sudden the people were sort of left behind. It led to the dependence of the people on Mother Church and the hierarchy that became the priesthood. And it led to the dilution of the gospel and the scriptures as a whole, as the scriptures sort of became, in a sense, lost to the people and many of the clergy. In fact, many of the clergy and most of the people could not read Latin. They could not read the Bible. None of them had the Bible in their hands. The Bible was only something that was held like with the bishops and the priests and stuff like that. But the compromise uh, between the church and state, which happened here in, in 313 AD with the Edict of Milan, like I said, I think it led to the biggest compromise in church history as it became married to the state. And anytime you get a church married to the state, it starts to compromise its, its truth. It loses its way. Most state religions are dead religions to, uh, when you look at them uh, throughout history of the church. So that's compromise in a nutshell. Now back to these false teachings that the church at Pergamos held to. You had the doctrine of Balaam. Now the doctrine of Balaam isn't some late first century false teaching, okay? Because Balaam, who knows who Balaam is? He's, he's from the book of Numbers, okay? So Balaam was a guy that Balak, king, king of the Moab, uh, Moabites, hired to curse Israel in Numbers. And we'll go uh, look at that in a second. So the doctrine of Balaam isn't some late first century uh, false teaching. It's a reference to the story of Balaam that you find in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. We're not going to read all of that, but basically that story in Numbers 22 through 25 is you have the Israelites, they're wandering through the wilderness and they're on their way now to the promised land. And as they're coming around to where Moab is, Balak, the king of the Moabites, sees this advancing horde of two million plus Israelites advancing on their country, and he starts to rightly freak out. I mean, as any king would, it's like you see an advancing horde coming, he's like, oh my goodness, we need to do something about this. So he goes and he hires Balaam, who is a false prophet, and he says, okay, I'm going to pay you, and I want you to curse them, because we know that when you curse somebody, they, they're, they're cursed, and so on and so forth. So Balak goes to Balaam and asks him to curse the Israelites. But then Balaam says, well, I will, I will speak the words that the Lord gives me to speak to, you know, to Israel. And Balak's like, okay, sure. So then Balaam goes to God and Balaam and God tells Balaam, he's like, you're not going to curse them. You're going to bless them. And that's what, exactly what happens. Instead of cursing them, Balaam actually blesses the Israelites three times. And of course, Balak is like, look, I hired you to curse these people. What are you doing? It's like, Balaam's like, look, I told you, I can only speak the words that God gives me. So, with Balaam's help, though, they devise another way to stop the Israelites. And what they do is, with Balaam's, at Balaam's suggestion, they, they get the Israelites to commit sexual adultery, sexual immorality with Moabite women. And you see that in Numbers, like I said, it's in Numbers 23, 22 to 25. 
So they get, uh, they get them through seduction of Moabite women. And so great was the sexual immorality and idolatry that they committed uh, that 24,000 Israelites died as a result of God's judgment on what they did. So in other words, they couldn't get them by cursing Israelites. So what they did was they went in through the back door. They snuck in through the back door of compromise by compromising their moral integrity, by compromising their ethical integrity, so they couldn't, he couldn't curse them to their face. So he says, oh, here's a way to get to them. We'll get them to compromise their religion. We'll get them to compromise their loyalty to God. And God will judge them. Okay? I, won't, I, I can't curse them. God told me I can't curse them. But we'll get them to commit so much sin and adultery that God will curse them. And that's kind of what happens. Those 24,000 Israelites die. They were slain in judgment. So this idea of the doctrine of Balaam then is... Is compromise. It's the idea of compromising the church, again, by bringing things in through the back door. So the persecution wasn't working, so we'll get them to compromise by, here, you'll be more acceptable if you, if you start to do some of these things. So the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you remember in Ephesus, when Jesus was talking about Ephesus, and when he commends Ephesus, he says to them, you even hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And when we looked at that, I said, I don't know what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. In fact, no one knows what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. Yeah, so when we looked at it back then, I said, there, no one really knows who these Nicolaitans are. Okay, I, I looked and I looked and, it's like, and I said, even now as I started researching this, I'm sad to say I don't know as any, more, any much more than I did back then when we looked at uh, the church, the letter to the church of Ephesus. But what I can say is that there is a question as to whether or not these are two distinct heresies or different names for the same heresy, namely compromise and cultural accommodation. Now, I did see in one source that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was sort of the doctrine of what they called clericalism. Okay, in other words, the doctrine of a clerical hierarchy, a hierarchy of the priesthood that you get, again, in the Roman Catholic Church, which is nowhere in the Bible. So this, this idea of, of the Nicolaitans was sort of a, a reference to an uh, early onset hierarchy of the priesthood that you see in the Roman Catholic Church. I, I can't confirm that. That's just why I saw that in one source. But the point of the matter is that both of these doctrines led to the compromise of the church. That's the, that's the key thing to take away here. Both of these doctrines led to the compromise of the church. As Jesus says in this verse, these teachings put a stumbling block before the people of God. And that word or phrase, stumbling block, translates a word in Greek, which is, we get the word scandal. The word is skandalon. And we get the word scandal from it. It was a scandal. And a scandal describes something, it's like a trap or a snare. It's something that you, you're not expecting, and all of a sudden you trip over it. That's why it's called a stumbling block. These false teachings are a trap to the church. They seem sensible at first. Hey, it would be nice to, you know, let's, let's bring in you know, all kinds of things of the world into the church. That way the world will like us, we'll appeal to the world. You know, then maybe they'll, they'll, they won't hate us as much, maybe they'll like us more, and we'll get more people in the church. That's how compromise kind of starts, right? So it's a way to sort of, it's, you know, these things seem sensible at first, but they end up as a trap, as a stumbling block. 
as a, as a, as a way to force the church to compromise the truth. As we said, the church in Ephesus was wise to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but not so much the church in Pergamos. So while Satan couldn't break the church through persecution, it tried a more subtle approach through compromise. The church in Pergamos was steadfast in the face of persecution. However, they were naive when, it, when they let false teaching in through the back door. And as we said earlier, all such compromise begins with doubting the word of God. Half God said. That's how all compromise begins. And then once we begin to doubt God's word, once we begin to doubt God's, the truthfulness of God's word, then we open the door to all sorts of false teachings. If we start to doubt God's word, well, you know, that teaching about homosexuality in the Old, in the Old Testament, that's, that's, that's primitive, that's, that's barbaric, we're, we're more sensible now. Okay, we let that false teaching in, or all kinds of false teaching that you can think of. Now, it's interesting, kind of a coincidence, I don't think so, but the words, both, both the words Balaam and the word Nicolaitan, uh, one is Hebrew, the other one is Greek, both of those words, when translated, literally mean conquer the people. Conquer the people. And that's exactly what these doctrines were doing. They were conquering the people of God. They were forcing them to compromise the truth. They were forcing them to ignore the word of God and they were being conquered by these false teachings. So now in verse 16, Jesus wants the church to repent. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight with, against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus urges the church to repent. Turn from your compromising ways, or else... And it says here, Jesus will come quickly and he will fight against the compromisers. He will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. And it will be just like it will be in the end of Revelation 19. That sword of his mouth will decimate them. Again, another interesting little, I don't find them coincidences, but in Numbers chapter 22, Balaam, if you remember again when Balaam's on his way to, to, to hear from God. He's on his donkey and he's riding and, his, and, the, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing in his way. The donkey turns away and Balaam's like, what's going on here? And it happens three times. And then Balaam strikes the donkey. And then it says that the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and the donkey says, to him, why are you hitting me? And Balaam's like, because you keep turning away. So I don't know what's crazier, the fact that the donkey spoke to him or that he's speaking back to the donkey. But be that as it may, the point is that finally he gets the vision of uh, the angel of the Lord. And it's the angel of the Lord holding a sword in his hand. That's Numbers 22.31. And then later on, Balaam himself was slain by a sword in Numbers 31 verse 8. So repent, or I will come quickly, and I will fight against those compromisers with the sword of my mouth. And then finally, in verse 17, we see the promise to the overcomer. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except 
him who receives it. So here we see a promise to the overcomer. Three things are promised to the one who overcomes. The first thing is he will give to that person, the one who overcomes, he will, Jesus will give them some of the hidden manna to eat. Now we know about manna, right? Manna was the bread that God gave to the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness, bread from heaven. But what is this hidden manna? What is the hidden manna? Well, some think the hidden manna is the manna that was put into the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant, was, it was said that the two tablets, the second set of two tablets, because Moses in his anger broke the first set of tablets. So the second set of tablets of the law were put in there, along with some of the manna that was given to them on the way. And then also Aaron's staff, the staff that budded when uh, you know, there was a little controversy over who was going to lead the people. So some think that the hidden manna was the manna that was hidden in the ark. Another way of thinking of this is also there's some Jewish apocalyptic writings, which these Jewish apocalyptic writings are writings that occur, that were sort of written after the end of the Old Testament before the New Testament. So in that intertestamental period, there's a bunch of these uh, Jewish apocalyptic writings which speak of the treasury of manna coming down again from on high. And the people then will once again eat of the bread of heaven in the last days. So it's sort of like a messianic promise. When, when the Messiah comes, the treasury of manna will open up and will, you know, bread will flow again. As, and the people will no longer be hungry as the Messiah comes. However, I personally prefer to think of the hidden manna as referring to Jesus himself. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Now, if you remember John chapter 6, this is where, this is John's telling of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So he feeds the 5,000, and afterwards he goes into the I am the bread of life discourse, where he talks about how he is the bread of life. And he says, your fathers ate the manna of the wilderness, but I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. So in uh, verse 47 of John chapter 6, Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, or if you're using the King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers, the people in the wilderness, they ate the manna in the wilderness and now are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, the one uh, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, if you're here this morning, when we looked at uh, the story of John with Nicodemus, and Jesus Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how can a man be born again when he is old? How can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? So here he says, you need to eat my flesh. And the people are like, how can this man give us his flesh? Jesus is always talking to people in the Gospel of John. And the people in the Gospel of John, it just goes right over their heads. You know, the, this, the deeper spiritual meaning that John, that Jesus speaks to them. So the Jews say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, 
and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Now it's interesting, of course, that you can turn back to Revelation 2, but it's interesting, of course, after he says that, Many of the people, it says, were turned away from Jesus because it says, this is a hard saying. We cannot take it. But anyway, I think the hidden manna is Jesus himself. Jesus himself says that his, bread, his body is true bread. His blood is true drink. If you feed on him, you will not die. The fathers ate the bread that came down from heaven, the manna. They ate it and they died. It wasn't the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the hidden manna. Jesus also says, I will give to the one who overcomes a white stone. And again, there are several theories on what the white stone means. One theory is that it was the white stone of victory that was given to winners in an athletic contest. So you won an athletic contest, you would get this white stone. Me personally, I'd be like, can you give me a check? But a white stone, I guess, will be good enough if, if, if I can trade that for something. Some also think that the white stone was the sort of the white stone of acceptance given to those invited by a host to a gathering as a welcome. So, you know, if you're inviting people to a party, you would give them a white stone. When they came to the party, you show the white stone, you would be allowed in as a guest. This one I like the most. Uh, some say it was the white stone of acquittal, announcing a verdict of innocence in a trial. So if you've got a black stone, guilty. If you've got a white stone, innocence. Now, like I said, I like the third option the most, but I say, let's have our cake and eat it too. Why can't all three be true? Right? I think all three make sense. Maybe some more than others, but I think, you know, I don't think we need to split hairs here. I think it could be all. I mean, you know, it's, the stone is given to a victor. The overcomer gets the white stone. The overcomer is given, the stone is given to one who overcomes, one who has been uh, announced not guilty who has been announced innocent, righteous by God, by faith, right? And we are also, as children of God, accepted into the great feast of the Lamb at the end of the age. So I like all three options. But then thirdly, Jesus will give to the overcomer a new name. We kind of reference the idea of new name in our series through the Gospel of John. God is in the business of giving new names, when Peter comes, when Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, Jesus says, you are Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. You are the rock. Okay. When, when, when he goes up to Abram, he says, you are no longer Abram. You are not going to be Abraham. God is in the business of giving out new names to his people. Naming something is a sign of ownership. So when God gives us a new name, he's saying, you are mine. I have given you a new name. You are now my child. You are no longer Lawrence or Jerry or Leslie or Delary. You are now my child. We are in Christ as such God gives to each one of us a new name. We are called and chosen for his purposes. We are no longer the old man born in sin, but we are now new creations in Christ. Called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And therefore now we have new 
identities. So to the one who overcomes, Jesus will give them to eat of the hidden manna. He will give them a white stone, and on that white stone will be a new name that only that person knows. Well, that is it here for the letter to the church of Pergamos. Next time, which will not be in two weeks, will be in three weeks, because we have a fifth Sunday in November. So the next time we meet will be December 6th. December 6th. And at that point, we will look at the next letter, which is the fourth letter, uh, to the church in Thyatira, which is the corrupt church. It's the longest letter. It's Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29.